You're listening to a message from the Winsboro Church of Christ. This is the Winsboro.Church podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or prayer requests, you can get in touch with us at any time through our website at Winsboro.Church. Good morning, church. Let's start today with prayer together. Heavenly Father, um, we need you. We always need you. And we pray, Father, that we may have eyes to see you and hearts to follow you. Father, bless our time of worship, even as it may be worship that is separates us by distance. But, Father, help us not to be separated from you and thereby knowing that we are all together in you, we know that we are all together in spirit. So, Father, bless our time of worship this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jerry Rushford was a professor and teacher at Pepperdine for many, many years. He organized the Pepperdine lectureships for decades, and he was an expert. Uh, He's retired now, but an expert in church history, particularly Churches of Christ. And I heard him tell a story once that I found humorous, but it was also very memorable and made a very poignant point. Uh, had a, a phrase that stuck into my mind. And so I'll recount to you the story as well as I can remember, but he had gone to the Pacific Northwest to track down uh, some history of some early church members, particularly who had cr- taken the Oregon Trail over to Oregon, Washington, Northern California. And uh, a good number of churches, people with Church of Christ backgrounds actually took the Oregon Trail. And so many churches of Christ were planted and started and were supported uh, over the years in the Pacific Northwest. And he was going to do some research, trying to track down some family groups, some ministers that had gone there. And he uh, did some digging and found a church that maybe had some connections. And they said, yeah, and a lot of, you know, our old-timey members are buried in this cemetery way off, you know, the beaten path. And he said, I'm there. I want to go see, see if I can find the tombstones, see if I can find the records and, you know, piece together somewhat of a history of the churches of Christ in that area in the 1800s. And he went and uh, the minister from that church actually took him out to this old cemetery. And when he got there, it was locked. The gates were locked. There was no admittance. But um, Jerry Rushford, not being one to shy away from research, no matter what, hopped the fence. And the minister was hesitant to do so. And I would say, had it been me, I probably would have been hesitant to do so. I don't like the idea of trespassing or breaking and entering or anything of those things. Uh, I generally hesitate, but this was Jerry, Ruff- Jerry Rushford's one time to be at the cemetery and to find out the information he wanted to find out. So he just hopped over and went and started looking at the tombstones. And the cemetery was overgrown And eventually he found one that he recognized, oh, this is what I've been looking for. This is so-and-so. And And he was a preacher, and he called for the minister to come over and come help me and pull out the weeds and see what other tombstones we can find and and see what other ones say, and maybe we make some more connections. And the minister was, again, still hesitant, thinking, and started to give reasons why he shouldn't hop over that fence. And then 
very succinctly, Jerry Rushford said, get over here. These are your people. I love that phrase. These are your people. And I have to admit, being raised in Churches of Christ, being a minister in Churches of Christ, having family member that goes back several generations in Churches of Christ, when I look over the auditorium, whenever I think about those sitting in their homes watching me, and I think about some maybe of our traditions, and maybe some of our quirky traditions even, but I can't help but acknowledge these are my people. And I love churches of Christ. They're my people. Sometimes I'm frustrated by my people too, but the idea that we are connected to each other and we have bonds that run deep. I love that idea. And I think we should embrace that idea. And when we look at Scripture, I love the phrase, my people, especially whenever God says it. Whenever God looks down and says, ah, those are my people. And that happens specifically in the story of the Exodus, in the story of how Israel became the nation of Israel. See, Israel were, were just a bunch of slaves living in the land of Egypt. They'd been there 400 years, four centuries. When they came into Egypt, they were a people that were respected and not and appreciated, and Pharaoh really appreciated Joseph. This is the end of the book of Genesis. And uh, gave Joseph's family a place to live. And then the Israelites exploded. Population growth off the charts. And Joseph died, and a new Pharaoh came to power. And in the book of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh has conscripted the Israelites into hard labor. They are his slaves, building his cities, building his storehouses. And that he is also becoming threatened by them because no matter how hard he tries to push them down, they just thrive and expand and they grow as the people of God. And you think about Pharaoh being the king of Egypt, and looking down over all of Egypt, and he would say of Egypt, oh, these are my people. People that customs like me, culture like me, worship like me. But in a very real sense, Pharaoh considered himself to have ownership over. And to some extent, the Egyptians, but even more so, the slaves, the Hebrew slaves, the, the Jewish slaves. And so he would maybe look at his palace and look over and like, oh, those are my people, the Egyptians. Those over there, those are the people that belong to me. And he felt entitled to both use and abuse them to whatever purpose he saw fit. He used them for excruciating, back-breaking, oppressive labor, jobs nobody else wanted to do, dangerous jobs, physical jobs, hard jobs, and he even made them harder on purpose to try to abuse them, to, to, to try to, to keep them down, feeling like, well, these people are growing so fast, they could be a threat. 
And so Pharaoh thought of, about the Israelites, the people that belong to me. And the story of the Exodus, the story of the creation of the Israelite people. Because before this, they were just a family. The family of Abraham, uh, his children and grandchildren going into the land of Egypt. Uh, Joseph, his, uh, his great-great-grandson, and Jacob, his grandson, the preeminent ones there. And so, and just 70, a, a clan, a, an extended family of 70 members going in, and yet over 400 years they grew into hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of men, and then you add to it the women and the children, and just a, a, an enormous people group, and one that Pharaoh saw no other purpose than they were to benefit the Egyptian people. They were there to serve the Egyptian people. They belonged to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, but yet God shows up. And he says, Pharaoh, they're not your people. They don't belong to you. Pharaoh, these are my people. And Moses' famous line that God told him to convey to Pharaoh, let my people go. Ah, a beautiful phrase. And one that's amazing... It is mind-boggling because for the God of the universe to look down and choose for himself a people, he doesn't choose the rich, he doesn't choose the powerful, he doesn't choose the important, the influential. That would have been Egypt. He chooses this ragtag bunch of slaves. And he says, they're my people. And Pharaoh, you can't do to them any longer what you've been doing. Your abuse, your use, your oppression, your burdens that you impose upon them, stop. And I am going to claim my people and bring my people into their own land and establish them and bless them and build them up. And that is the core story of the Old Testament. The core story of the Israelite people, out of whom, of course, Jesus came. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is Moses at the burning bush. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God says, I have seen their affliction, I have heard their cries, and I know their sorrows. Why? Because they're my people. They're the people that God is personally invested in. And he says, the time has come, Moses. That's what he goes on to say. I have come down to deliver them. From the hand of the Egyptians. You know, Moses goes over look, look at this burning bush and what's, what's here and then realizes, well, God is here. And why is God here? Because God says, I've come down to deliver my people, to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up from that land to a land that is both good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey, 
to the region of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now indeed the cry of the Israelites has come to me. God has heard them. It has come to me, and I have also seen how severely the Egyptians oppressed them. So now go, Moses, and I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I am sending you to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Not because they're Moses' people, but because they're God's people. And God has come down and said, enough is enough. Those are my people. And what an encouraging thought to, to know that God has designated a people. He chose in the Old Testament, the Israelites, in the New Testament, through Jesus, all people can now become the people of God. And whenever God looks at all people, He looks down and says, Ah, they are mine. And I will intervene on their behalf. We do not serve a passive God. We do not serve a quirky God who likes to just uh, see what happens. Uh, there's a old Far Side cartoon that I really liked, and it's a you know, tongue-in-cheek like most of his are, and it's a picture of this old man who's God, you know, standing at a kitchen counter, and he's got jars around him, almost like spices, and uh, there's jars that say, you know, light-skinned people, dark-skinned people, medium-skinned people, and there's jars that say trees and insects and bugs, and then, but he's holding in his hand a jar that says jerks. And you see a little cloud bubble thought, you know, from God saying, hmm, this is going to make it interesting. And a lot of people have the idea that, well, if there's a God, that's what he's doing, because, man, he must just enjoy watching the chaos, stirring up the trouble and seeing what happens. It's not God. Not the one true God. Not the God of the Bible. Not the God of the Israelites. Not the God of Jesus. And not now the God of the followers of Jesus, us. Our God looks down and says, oh, My people need me, and I'm coming. My people need my help. Not just to make life comfortable, but to take away the burdens, to take away the oppression to take away the heartache and the toil and to give rest. And that's what Jesus proclaimed and brought in the new kingdom of God through Him as King. And it's all we look forward to when Jesus comes back. And now we live in this kind of limbo in between, but we have faith. We have faith that God still hears and cares about His people. My kids... I got a few of them. And so they're getting older now, uh, which brings with it its own trials. But even still now, whining, fussing, arguing are pretty common sounds in our house. And even crying, Slater is still pretty little. And uh, something doesn't go his way. He will vocalize it pretty loudly. He's, he's pretty spoiled. Um, <laughs> he's got five older siblings to spoil him. And 
mom and dad do their part too. I'm not uh, exempt from that by any means, but uh, I, I can hear the cries of my kids. And because I have a few of them, I sometimes just tune them out. Or I respond with, um, that's not worth crying about. I, I don't care that you didn't get, you know, as many french fries as your brother did. Or I don't care that uh, you didn't get to play video games for as long as you think you should have gotten to play video games. Or that you didn't get to pick what movie we watched. So, I mean kids and adults too, we can overreact when we don't get our way and fuss and cry and complain. That's not what the Israelites are doing with the Egyptians. They weren't overreacting. The Egyptians were completely oppressing them. And I would say that when my kids actually have actual pain, when they hurt and hurt significantly, that when I hear that cry, and, and some people say, well, I can tell exactly what's going on by the sound of the cry, or I can tell the difference in a, you know, an insignificant cry and a significant cry. I can't always tell. My kids are pretty good at crying. Sometimes I've run into a room and they're just fighting over a toy. But it sounded like somebody lost a leg. But when I go in and somebody is actually hurt, because my kids, any kid, sometimes gets hurt, and some, you know, more than what I want them to be. Um, we're blessed with healthy kids for the most part, but, you know, Payson recently had surgery, and I saw the pictures of him in the hospital, because Lisa was there with him, and like him bandaged up and wrapped up after they did surgery on his ear, and, uh, oh, just my heart ached like ah i don't like seeing them like that i want to make it better and i can't it's beyond my power but when god looks down at his people at his children when he looks at us and we are truly oppressed heartbroken beat down overwhelmed and sometimes because of just the state of this world, sometimes because of the actions and inactions maybe of other people, and maybe because we made some mistakes and pay for our own consequences even, but when God looks down and sees His people suffering in anguish, oppressed, God longs to act. God longs to come and say, ah, I've heard my people. I've seen my people. I'm coming to help my people. I'm coming to rescue my people. Because where I can't necessarily take the pain away from my children, God can. And that makes it challenging of, well, why doesn't God do it more often? That's not an easy question. And I don't want to dismiss it and say, try to give it an easy answer by any means. Um, I will say one thing, though, and that is, you know, the Israelites for 400 years were in Egypt. And, and it got worse and worse and worse, it seems like, as I read the story of Scripture. And like it was, was that breaking point whenever Moses was born and Pharaoh was killing all the baby boys and Moses was put in the basket and then... 
Now, this is many decades after that, though. Moses is 80 years old at the burning bush. And God says, now is the time. And so we, ob- we, we have eager expectation, knowing that God will right wrongs, and we also have faith that God will do it at the right time. And that's hard, especially when we're in the moment suffering. But I will say, uh, the point of this lesson is that God does hear. God sees. God takes notice. God is not up there on some cloud like in the, uh, if the cries get loud enough, oh, what's that noise? I'm, sometimes I hear noise at the other end of the house or the kids are fussing and uh, what is that? Ah, no, I'm, sometimes I react to just the noise. That's not God. He's not reacting to the noise. He's reacting to his children who need him. And that's the foundational story of the Israelite people. And the, now through Jesus, the foundational story for us. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 is a famous verse. I, I see it shared on Facebook. Sometimes, I've even seen billboards of it driving by. and It says, If my people, and some translations who are called by my name, this one says, If my people who belong to me humble themselves, pray, seek to please me and repudiate their sinful practices, then I will respond from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And usually when I see it shared, I see the emphasis on we need to repent. We need to repudiate. We need to change, to turn, your translation might say. We need to turn back to God, to humble ourselves, to pray, to turn to God, and then our land and implied by many in their application, our country will be healed. If we just get back on course. And I see this verse used in that way. I want to emphasize, though, the beginning of it, which actually God emphasizes too, because He reiterates Himself. He, you know, at the very beginning, God repeats an idea. When God, you know, when the scripture preachers even to repeat an idea, I mean, we give it emphasis. Ah, this is important. Important to understand. And and so the opening line is he's talking about repenting and turning and being healed. Yes. I'm not trying to diminish that part, but I'm trying to lift up the first part. Because I see that being a focus. If my people who belong to me, do this. Then God says, absolutely, I'm coming. If my people will turn to me, embrace me. God, kind of like the story of the prodigal son, God's there waiting to jump up and run to him, to run to us. Why? Because we're the my people. Because we belong to Him. And it doesn't say, if you turn and pray and humble yourselves, then you'll be my people. No. Let's be very careful to say what the Bible says here. It's not, well, if we do what we need to do, then we'll be God's people and be blessed. Well, if we do what we need to do, we'll be blessed. 
But the perspective of this verse is, you're already my people. If my people who belong to me, God speaking here to the Israelites, if you, because you're my people, if you change, if you learn the lesson I'm trying to teach you, if you repent, if you become the people I've called you to be, you're already my people, but I'm expecting a certain level and standard of living, a standard of morals and ethics and how you treat one another and how you remain holy and undefiled by the nations and the, the world around you. If you do that, I'll turn and I'll heal you, absolutely. Why? Because you're my people. And you're my people before you turned, and you're my people after you turned. That doesn't change. We're not just God's people when things are going right. We're not just God's people when I'm doing right. I'm God's people. We're God's people because we have surrendered to Jesus. And after we surrender to Jesus, after we make Him our Lord and our King and our Savior, after we give our lives to Him, it's a rocky road. And sometimes there'll be days when we need to turn, we need to humble, we need to pray and repent so that we can find healing. but not because we're not the people of God, but because we are. There's a passage, Isaiah chapter 19, that I think in a very profound way expands our understanding of when God says, my people. Isaiah chapter 19, starting in verse 22. Isaiah in these verses is referencing Egypt. The same big bad Egypt that oppressed and you know, conscripted the Israelite people into slavery and hard labor. But Isaiah's got a different take on it. Looking forward to a new future. A new future that I think in a large part is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But he's looking forward to a new future and he paints this amazing picture of God not just pushing down the arrogant Egyptians and lifting up his people. But in this picture, God lifts everyone up. Because when you read the whole story of the Bible, you see that's what he was after all along. That in choosing Israel to be his special possession, his special people, he actually was starting a plan that would culminate in Jesus. And then all the people of the earth could become his people. The Lord will strike Egypt. Now that's a familiar phrase. Lord strike Egypt. Well, yeah, he struck them with the ten plagues. And the, I mean, the language here is very reminiscent of what went on in Exodus, and yet he puts a spin on it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and then healing them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will listen to their prayers and heal them. Sound familiar? Sounds like just like 2 Chronicles 7.14. They'll turn, pray, and be healed. 
Yet this is not Israel. Second Chronicles 7.14 is definitely talking about Israel. Here God's talking about Egypt. And the listeners of Isaiah, you know, the, the very Jewish audience in Isaiah's church or when he's standing on the hillside preaching, giving his prophecies, they'd be, what? Well, wait a second. You just, God's going to heal them. They're going to turn. And they're going to receive grace, blessing. Egypt? I think, I think you messed up. You misspoke, Isaiah, but Isaiah didn't misspeak because he goes on. At that time, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Egypt, you know, is the classic enemy of the Jews with Pharaoh and the Ten Plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and all that. Assyria, in Isaiah's day, is the modern enemy of the Jews. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will visit Egypt and the Egyptians will visit Assyria. And the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. At that time, Israel will be the third member of the group. Israel was this small country. Egypt and Assyria were superpowers of the ancient world. Israel was a nothing. And yet God says, I'm going to take Egypt, heal them. I'm going to take Assyria. And Assyria and Egypt together will worship, and we're going to see in just a moment, worship God, the one true God, because... Israel will be third among them, blessed and built up in the people of God as well. And at that time, Israel will be the third member of the group along with Egypt and Assyria and will be a recipient of blessing in the earth. The Lord of heaven's armies will pronounce a blessing over the earth, the whole earth, saying, Blessed be my people, Egypt. What? Egypt is your people? Isaiah says, yes, it is. Blessed will be my people, Egypt, and the work of my hands, Assyria. So my people, Egypt, my work, Assyria, and any Jew with any kind of sensibility would say, that's nuts. We're God's people. Isaiah says, yes, you are. And my special position, Israel. You all are. Here's the thing. We come, we sit in the pews, and we worship. Or we sit at home in the current time, and we worship. Doing that isn't how we become the my people of God. Um, We become the my people of God through Christ. And then because we're the my people of God, we gather together and we worship. Here's the thing, though. God isn't just looking down at this church on this corner and this church on that corner and you know that one over there and saying, all right, well, my people, my people, my people, the rest, too bad, so sad. Now, what we see here in Isaiah and then pushed forward into the New Testament, even more so, God desires all people to come to a knowledge of Him, to become His, my people. So when we look around, and this is where we're going the next several weeks with this idea of being the my people of God, and God seeing us and hearing us, today's lesson, God hearing His people, 
saying, I've heard my people and I'm going to respond. When we look out, every person we see, we should think in our minds, whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, we need to think, you know, when God looks at them, God says, my people. I want them to be my people. I'm working maybe through us to help them become my people. I'm going to work through Colby. I'm going to work through the Winsboro Church of Christ. People that come and sit in the pews and are my people, yes, you've got a job to do. Hear, listen, see the people around you and recognize God wants them to be His people too. And to have that heart and passion for expanding God's kingdom. Not by terror, not by oppression. That's how other governments work. Not the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God works through service and love and blessing. And that's our job in this new world that God's envisioning here in Isaiah chapter 19. Where even the worst of the nations, the worst of the peoples, will recognize how amazing God is and turn and be healed and come and worship be together with his special possession, Israel. And how does that happen? How do all nations come together? Mm. Through Christ. Through the one that died to save not just one country, but all mankind for all time. So that we could be God's my people.